Um, another quick random thought. I'm, I'm full of random thoughts this morning, I guess, but uh, we had the Love, Inc. Gala last night. We had a wonderful time there celebrating the ministry of Love, Inc. that we're a part of here in our community. And uh, if many of you know that we have a bunk bed ministry, and uh, I'm proud to tell you that Peter Isabel was on the video last night telling us about the... Did a great job, Peter. Did a great job. And uh, how many... There was a number given as to how many beds. Did that include bunk beds, or was it, was it only bunk beds? Jane, help me out here. That's, it was not bunk beds. Okay, that was just mattresses and other beds. Okay. Okay, so do I dare put us on the spot and ask how many, how many beds we think we've made, how many bunk beds we think we've made? Yeah. Yeah. Two, three hundred beds have been made bunk beds and given. And, and Peter did a great job last night in a, in a videotaped presentation on, on what it means for us as a church to be able to distribute beds to those. Peter will tell you that we, we, go, uh, we go to places where kids are sleeping on the floor, right here in Chaska and Chanhassen. And a bunk bed is the greatest thing since sliced bread for them. And uh, so to be able to go into those homes, be able to minister to families, pray with families, I know it. So ask Peter about it, and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. It was great to see our GAP ministry highlighted last night. It was just a real blessing to see that. So we continue our, our journey through the Sermon on the Mount this morning, Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Jesus continues his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount by looking at another kingdom value, and that is taking oaths. More specifically, as followers of Christ, our calling is to be a people who walk in and represent truth. Simply stated, Christians don't lie. Amen? On your way rejoicing. Don't lie. There, there you go. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's what Jesus is going to teach us today. And frankly, if you can lock that into your brain... And if you can take that with you into every conversation and every circumstance, then you'll be living kingdom values. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And when it comes to truth-telling, there's no shortage of contemporary illustrations for us today. We just marked the International Holocaust Memorial Day on January 27th. And that's a powerful picture of, of the power of a lie to move a whole nation or nations. So when it came to his goal of eliminating the Jewish people, Hitler created what he called the big lie. He blamed the Jewish people for all the problems of pre-World War II Germany. His big lie theory said that no matter how big the lie is, or more precisely, because it's so big, people will believe it if you repeat it often enough. Have you heard that before? Hitler's, that was his theory. And so he believed that everybody lies, and so it only takes, it, it, it takes the bold and the courageous to invent a big lie, big enough so that everybody has to believe it. Make it big enough, tell it often enough, and they'll believe anything you tell them. And it worked. A lie gave us the Holocaust. Just this week, we have a former acting FBI director going to the media 
and describing an amazing attempt by government officials to have a sitting president removed from office. The trail of lies and deception seems to go on and on and on and on. They're even writing books boasting about their lying. Of course, everybody considers the source of it as, chronic, as a chronic liar, so we don't even know if we can believe this or not. That's the problem with lying. Some years ago, it was reported that the chaplain of the Kansas Senate prayed this in front of the, the Senate. This is what he said. Omniscient Father, help us to know who is telling the truth. One side tells us one thing and the other just the opposite. And if neither side is telling the truth, we would like to know that too. And if each side is telling half the truth, give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In the name of Jesus, amen. How about that? No shortage of political lies these days. So much so that I would dare to say that it makes normal, common folks feel a, a profound sense of cynicism for what's happening. Well, it's easy to find illustrations of bold-faced lies, lies of convenience, or even little white lies. We can find lots of illustrations. But we have to, we have to be careful not to think that the problem of lying is out there someplace, that it lies with another group of people. Lying seems to be a default human characteristic. And we're all capable of coming up with creative ways to bend, to distort, or to minimize the truth when it seeks to serve our own advantage. As I, as I quote often, Huck Finn said, in, at least in one of the movies about Huck Finn, said, I didn't think the truth was such a good idea in that moment, so I slung him a story. That's what we do. And perhaps that's why Jesus included this topic in the Sermon on the Mount. It seems kind of random, the topics that he's choosing, but it, Jesus doesn't do random. It's all for a purpose. His teaching is all for a purpose to get us going in a direction to see the kingdom, to see the kingdom values, to see his truth, to see his promises. So there's nothing random in his word. The issue of our word, of being truthful people, had somewhat gotten lost in the excuses somewhere between the giving of the Ten Commandments on the mountain and the mountainside where Jesus was teaching the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. The point is quite simple. As a follower of Christ, you shouldn't have to swear by God in order to enforce your word. There it is. You should already be known you should already be trusted as a person of truth and a commitment to your word. You should be known for that. There I go, shooting on people again. Your yes should be yes. I'm going to say this often today. Your yes should be yes, and your no should be no. So let's look at it. Let's look at the teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. Start at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Okay, as, as is the formula in Matthew chapter 5 here for each of these segments, let's look at what, what the Old Testament said, what the, what the Pharisees had distorted it to say, and then we'll look at what Jesus says, because he says, but I say to you, 
and we'll see if we can wrap it up and make an application. At the face of this, there doesn't appear to be anything distorted with the truth. Who can argue with this? You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Don't enter into an oath falsely. Don't, don't enter into an oath. Don't swear by something with the intention of violating it. Be sure to do what you commit to doing. Makes perfect sense to me. So how did the rabbis and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, how did they, how did they mess this up? What was the Old Testament teaching that Jesus was correcting? Or let me, let me rephrase that. What was the Old Testament distortion that Jesus was correcting? Why did Jesus feel that it needed to be addressed here? Isn't this a self-evident idea to tell the truth to one another? Let's look at it. Taking an oath was not an issue. It's the first thing that comes to my mind. Is taking an oath was not an issue. And in Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, Scripture tells us, Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. There's a long list of making vows in Scripture. There were temple regulations for a vow offering. There were rules for making a vow and for keeping it. There were judgments against those who made a vow and broke it. Leviticus 19 verse 12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. The problem in the time of Moses, when he, when he wrote these five books of the Bible, when he wrote these commands, was that the people were not trustworthy in their word. The vow had to be put in place in order to counter a tendency of people to lie about everything and anything. And then we think about vows, we think about the fact that even God makes vows with the people of Israel. In his covenant with Abraham, God vowed to make him a great nation. So what does it mean when God makes a vow? What's the difference between you making a vow, me making a vow, and God making a vow? When people make a vow, they swear to something greater than themselves so that they can confirm their word or to, that they're speaking the truth. They swear by something greater than themselves. But when God makes a vow, when God takes an oath, who does he swear by? Himself. Himself. It's not to prove the truthfulness of his word, but it's to bolster our faith in what he's promising. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 5 and look at Hebrews 11. I'm sorry, Hebrews 6. The writer of Hebrews describes this situation with God making a promise and making an oath. Verse 13, chapter 6, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to please for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So there it is, the idea that God is making an oath, but to no one greater than himself, it's just his promise. If we think about the idea of oaths in, oaths in, the, in the scriptures, the apostle Paul himself was under a Nazarite vow to the Lord and operating under that. Paul also swore by God that how much he loved the churches and how much he cared for the people of the churches. So when we talk about vows, making a vow was not something unusual in the Old Testament or in Scripture. In fact, it was, it was woven into the Scripture. So then what was the problem? By the time Jesus came on the scene, the religious leaders had done what they do best, and that is distorting God's law. And as we've discussed, the rabbis and the Pharisees were trying to make God's laws manageable, something we can touch and feel, something we can measure and quantify. We just, we just can't seem to handle spiritual principles. And to do that, they made all kinds of rules and regulations around God's laws. The, re the result was they detracted from the spiritual intent of the law. And instead, they focused on behavior. They focused on the outward representation of the law. The, spirit, the, the, the real intent of the law, the spirit of the law, the real spiritual issues were lost in a pile of rules and regulations that the religious leaders put on it. That's what's going on here. So how did they do that? One of the ways they did that is they, the use of God's name makes a vow really serious, okay? I swear by God that if I say that, that's a pretty serious commitment, is it not? I'm invoking God's name. So they gave ways to make vows without mentioning God's name. Look at Matthew chapter 23. They, they created all kinds of loopholes and exceptions and ways that you didn't have to mention God's name. Jesus addressed this issue. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 16, Jesus is talking to the, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. And he's talking about this issue. Woe to you. <laughs> Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold, had made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, well, that's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, then he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears in heaven, whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. As long as they could get the vow away from the name of God, then it was okay to break the vow. It was okay to lie about it. One rabbinical teaching was that if you swore by the temple, you could break the vow. But if you spoke toward the temple, you were violating God. Did you follow that? Boy, it's complicated when you have all kinds of rules, isn't it? 
But you see what they're trying to do is they're trying to disconnect God from the vow. And if God's disconnected from the vow, then it doesn't matter because you can, then you can break the vow if you need to, if you want to. And along with that, then they made rules on when it was okay to break a vow or to tell a lie. In the, the Mishnah, the, the, the compilation of laws that go on top of God's law, they dedicated a whole section of the Mishnah to guidelines on how to make a vow and all the exceptions to keeping it. And then the other thing they did is they, they overused vows. And the, the, the people of Israel said, I, I read someplace that somebody, the one common expression was, by my beard, by my beard, I swear to you. Well, we overused it. And we use it for everything. By this, by that, by this, by that. I swear to you by this, by that, by meaningless, insignificant things. And they cheapened the language so that when you finally came to a significant issue, a significant issue to God and to you, a a life-dependent vow, then it doesn't mean anything because we've used the idea of a vow or an oath for everything else. We've cheapened the language. In, in, In today's terms, you would say, you would say that perjury, that lying under oath, is a clear infraction of this law. And we would also say that any other kind of law, any other kind of lying is acceptable. For the people of Israel, perjury was top of the list, held in high regard. But after that, if you didn't perjure yourself, you wouldn't be held liable for telling a lie. It's a picture of a time, and this is kind of new to me, it's a picture of a time when you just didn't know if you could take someone at their word or not. It's a time when the commandments to, bear, to not bear false witness or to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain were in constant state of abuse. And so Jesus goes on, verse 34, and he says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. There's a school of thought, and it's based on this passage, that we should not enter into any oath for any reason. Quakers, religious group of the Quakers, the Jehovah's Witnesses, are famous for refusing to take an oath of any kind based on this passage. And I would say in my, in my brief study that even theologians are mixed in their responses as to the intention of Jesus in this passage. Is he emphasizing not taking oaths at all? Or is he emphasizing the use of God's name in taking an oath? So given the fact that making a vow or taking an oath is seen and even encouraged in the Old Testament, makes me skeptical of the literal idea of not taking an oath. The emphasis seems to be on telling the truth and of using God's name properly. For example, Jesus says to not take an oath by heaven or earth. And the reason for that, as he goes through the list of vows, he points out that God is behind every one of them. The Jews thought that they could vary the veracity of the vows by not mentioning God's name. Well, I swear by the temple. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, now you're invoking God's name. That's how they split the hairs. But Jesus points out that God is behind every one of those things. 
If you go to the temple, God is there. If you, have, if you look at the gold of the temple, the glory of God is there. If you, if, if you swear by heaven or earth, it's, it's God's footstool. It's God's throne. God is there. God is behind every one of them, every, every vow made, every word spoken. And the Jews thought that if they didn't mention his name, if they just kind of did these little end-around things, that God wouldn't notice, that God wouldn't pay attention. See, we can fool ourselves to thinking that God's not in our vows, that God doesn't hear our vows, that, that he doesn't pay attention to our commitments or to our words. But in his omnipresence, in his all-knowing, he knows exactly what we're doing. He knows the intentions of our hearts. He knows the words of our lips. And so we are held accountable, and I could give you lots of verses, especially in the Old Testament, that says, be careful to fulfill your vows lest you incur the wrath of the Lord. He's watching. He's paying attention. The words matter that we speak. If I say, I commit to you to do this, God is listening. Jesus also goes on to say that we can't control the hairs on our head. And if we make a vow based on something that's outside of ourselves, we can't control the outcome. We like to think that we're in control of our circumstances or the outcomes, but, but Jesus says, you can't control anything. That too is in God's hands. So we could make a vow and not be able to fulfill it. The bottom line, stay away from vows. Read James chapter 5 with me, if you would. James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. There you have it. Stay away from the confusion. Stay away from the judgment that comes from not keeping them. But rather, we're to be a people who do what we say at all times. We're to be people who can be counted on to speak the truth regardless of the cost or the outcome. Kingdom people are those who don't lie. Kingdom people are those who have no need for an outside source of validation for what they say. Their word is solid. Their reputation is those of their word. Those of the kingdom will let their, say it with me, yes be yes and no be no. So what do we do with that? Perhaps some would say that this passage is simply about not making public vows, but I believe it's more than that. It seems to be about our honesty. It seems to be about our integrity as God's people. I admit that this is not an easy conversation. It kind of makes my head spin. We can come up with lots of ifs or buts or asterisks to the conversation and say, well, what about this? And what about that? And is it okay to lie here? And we can come up with all kinds of things. And I submit to you that that's what got the Pharisees in trouble, is that they didn't stop with just saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And they started looking for loopholes. So what are some of the questions that we come up with? First question, why should we keep our word? I think Jesus is telling us here in Matthew chapter 5 is because God is behind all that we do. 
Nothing is done in secret. Nothing is done in the dark. Everything, everything we do is with God's complete knowledge. God is behind everything we do. And I, if we desire to honor God, if we desire to give God glory, it means speaking truth. It means being honest. It means not lying. It means recognizing that God is behind everything I do. Why should I speak the truth? Because I want to avoid the discipline of the Lord. If I don't keep my word, he's paying attention. And the word is clear that there is discipline involved. He does not take it lightly if we don't keep our word. Why should I keep my word? Because God's reputation is at stake. People are watching. My testimony about who Christ is in my life includes the validity of my word, the honesty of my word. And then along with that, I would say that the influence of the kingdom is at stake. You want to short-circuit your testimony? Just lie to people. They'll never listen to you again. So then the question is asked, are there times when lying is permissible? I don't want to give a loophole. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But we all, we all know that there are circumstances like wartime when it may not be the best thing to do to tell the truth. If a, if a, if a Nazi soldier comes to your door and says, by the way, is Anne Frank living here? What are you going to say? Well, yeah, she's upstairs behind a fake wall. No, there are times. There are times when a life is at stake. What would you do if you were Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II and you were working to counter the Nazi movement, and to undo the Nazi movement, and yet you're a pastor? What would you do? I've done some reading on the Civil War, and I know that, and I know that people, and especially actors, were employed to mingle with communities and, and become one of the... One, one guy acted as a, as a drunk so that people would talk freely in front of him. And he would go back with the information, with the intel. Is that kind of lying acceptable? There are probably times when speaking the truth is harmful. The danger of trying to think of every example is that, is that we tend to find exceptions for every situation. We take a simple exception, an extreme example, and we try to make it a template for everything. And that's exactly what the rabbis and the Pharisees did. They tried to find exceptions and loopholes for everything. The bottom line is to let your... Oh, that was much better. So what do I do if I can't keep my word? I own it. I own it. I can't do it. I can't be there. I can't fulfill my obligation. You acknowledge it and you own it. And I would say no asterisks and no, no excuses. And you apologize for it. You, need, you ask forgiveness if need be. And then you recognize the cost. Whether you pay the cost or not, I think, is a negotiation between the other, you and the other party. But you recognize my failure to, to keep my word has cost this, and I'm truly sorry for it. We live in a litigation-laden society. Everyone is at fault, and someone has to pay. Being honest and transparent, seeking truth, is not a value that, that our world holds dearly. 
there can be a cost to it. When you seek to stand on truth, there may be a cost to pay. Let's not be ignorant of that. Let's not be naive. But there's also a benefit that cannot be measured. The benefit is called integrity. The benefit is called truthful relationships. The benefit is called being pleasing to God. The benefit is called vindication by God. And the list goes on and on. The benefit is sleeping at night knowing that I've been truthful even though the situation is difficult. So let me, let me try to wrap this up. There are times in Scripture when telling half-truths was attempted. You might think of a couple of stories. Remember Abraham? Uh, this beautiful woman here, she's my sister. He did it twice. Well, it's kind of true. They were, he, she was a half-sister, right? Didn't work for him. God intervened. Praise the Lord for Sarah. Jacob was known as a trickster. He was always manipulating circumstances, manipulating the truth in order to gain advantage. You see, distorting the truth and misrepresenting ourselves never works out in God's kingdom. Truth and honesty are always the best policy. So what do we do? What do we say? I, I, I live by this. When I'm tempted to not tell the truth, when I'm tempted to bend something around, I always come back to the idea, and when, I'm, when I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated with the injustice of truth not surfacing, I always say to myself, truth wins. Truth will always surface, whether it's at the end of the conversation, whether it's at the end of the year or 10 years, or whether it's in eternity. Truth always wins. If you want to be on the winning team, stand on the side of truth. Tell the truth. Another thing that I, I think we can conclude from this is that God honors those who stand on truth no matter the cost. God is standing behind you when you speak it, and he's standing behind you when you stand by it. And he's saying, that's my boy, that's my daughter, and I stand with them as they speak the truth, and God will be your rear guard as you speak the truth. I've seen divorce proceedings, and this, this truth really comes out in divorce proceedings when life just goes off the rails and and it, I've seen so often, and you've seen it too, when a divorce goes very bad and, and all of a sudden we begin to think that I need to come up with all kinds of stuff to make the other person look bad. And I've seen it where it's blatant lies and blatant dishonesty all for the purpose of trashing the character of another person. Divorce seems to bring that out. I've also seen circumstances where one partner in a divorce proceeding determines to live by truth and determines to live with integrity, and determines to keep their word. And I have seen God stand by those situations immovable. I've seen business dealings just this week. I heard, of, I heard two stories this week that, that feed into this idea. One example of a business owner who didn't keep their word, didn't keep a contract, and, and, and once they got paid, they said, see you later, and left a mess behind an expensive mess, and they were calling themselves Christians. Uh, Peter, I think you gave me the ex example of the sports camp. Was that you that gave me that illustration? Somebody did. I was in a conversation this week. Somebody talked about a sports camp where um, they, they contracted for 
kids to come to, I, I believe, a, a, some kind of a sports camp during the summertime. And one year, the, it got really hot outside, unbearably hot. But they had committed every day to provide sports training until 3 o'clock every day. It didn't matter if it was 100 degrees outside and the kids were sitting in the dugout or sitting off in the shade. They still continued to teach because they contracted to do the teaching. That's committing to their word. And a mom came to them and said, you know, for Junior, it's just too hot out. He, just, he couldn't do the last two days of the five-day camp. I'm, he just couldn't. I'm sorry he couldn't be there. They instantly wrote the lady out a check and said, here's a check for the two days that your son missed. And she said, why? Why did you do that? My son just couldn't. It's not your fault that it's so hot out. Because they were keeping their word. We said we would provide this, and we will provide it. And if we don't, we will reimburse you. Now, which of those examples do you think God is looking for? God is looking for integrity in our word. I have to just stop there. I've got, I've got some really great illustrations too, but we'll stop there. God will always see you through, no matter what happens. If you speak the truth, no matter the cost, God will see you through. Amen? Amen. Amen. On your way rejoicing.